If you can get the image of Karen and me being Donnie and Marie, let me ask you to, if you can get that out of your head, let me ask you please to bow. And let's pray together as we come to the scripture. Father in heaven, uh, now we come to your word. I pray that you would indeed uh, put yourself uh, in our minds, that we would know you. And I pray you do that as you have prescribed through your most holy, sacred word. And I pray that even as we hear it read, as we think upon it, God, that it will move us, cause us to be people of faith. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read Habakkuk in chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. So please turn there. We've been in this uh, book for the last couple of weeks and we'll stay here for a few more. But uh, I want to read chapter 2 of the prophecy of Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 1, hear the word of God. I will take my stand at my watch post. Remember, this is Habakkuk. He's, he's gone through some questioning with God. He's heard from God, and now he's, he's, he's waiting upon him. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, that is God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations, collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly rise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you've plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence uh, to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. 
that all the earth keep silence before him. I want, if God will help us, to concentrate our attention on verse 4, really on this second part of verse 4. But the righteous shall live by his faith. We mentioned last Sunday, I believe, that, that that's the pivot of this whole prophetic word, meaning that everything turns on it. We, we, we're curious until we come to it. Once we come to it, it becomes that, that point that we unpack throughout the rest of the prophetic word. We talk about prophecy. We, we generally think of, of foretelling the future. We, we generally think a prophetic word comes to us that says this is what is going to happen. But, but really, in the, in the, in, in, by way of the Old Testament prophets, that's really just a secondary thing. It, it happens most often in prophetic words. It happens even here. We know that, that the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, uh, as they're called here, are going to come up against Judah. Remember Judah being the southern kingdom uh, to which Habakkuk speaks, the southern kingdom of Israel in this 600-ish B.C. time period. And we know that, uh, that Judah has sinned against God and, and, and we know that he's going to bring these Babylonians, these Chaldeans, against them as, by way of judgment. So, so that's a predictive sort of prophetic word here and there's some other things that we can glean as well. But the primary thing about the Old Testament prophets is to speak the truth of God. To speak the truth of God. That's what a prophet does. He doesn't simply foretell, but he, we put it this way, he foretells. He tells forth that which is true. And this is true about those who belong to God, that they are, are called righteous ones, and the righteous ones live by faith. That's true. And that's what informs Habakkuk's life. That's what changes everything in him from the questioner and complainer that he is in the beginning to the man of faith that will find him being and and the way of faith that we find him living and the statements of faith that we see him giving as we come to the end of this prophetic book. That's what transforms him. This truth that the righteous will live by his faith. You remember... Habakkuk's confused. He's questioning God. He's questioning God, not unlike we do, because he sees stuff that we see and puts it in the context of God and wonders what that really means. And so what he saw was that there was injustice and violence and sin against God uh, in the midst of his community, in the midst of Judah, this southern kingdom of Israel. And we find that that confused him because he believed in God. And he thought, how can this be? How can God be silent and not act? How can he not speak and, and sit idly by? That was his confusion. Why is this going on? Habakkuk had lived through the great revival of King Josiah, and he knew what it was to have a people who followed after God. And now that the tables had turned and the people were living against God now, why would God put up with that? Why wouldn't he bring another revival? Why wouldn't he discipline? Why wouldn't he judge? Why wouldn't he bring the revival that he had seen, Habakkuk had seen, during the time of King Josiah? And that confused him, and he went before God, and God answered him, and God said, I'm not silent, I'm not sitting silently by, but I'm going to do something that will still confuse you. I am going to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians against you, and they are a ruthless people, and they are godless people, and I know that. And so Habakkuk begins then to take this information and to think about it in the context of God, and he realizes something, that God is everlasting, that God is holy, that God is his rock, that God is is his Lord and His Holy One, meaning that he has a relationship with God and God a relationship with his people. 
And so he begins to reason, as Habakkuk does, I get it, he says, you're going to bring the Babylonians to, to judge us. But then he's still confused. Why the Babylonians? How can you use them? So in part, he has a little bit of it figured out as God makes revelation to him about what he's going to do. But still, it confuses him. But this time, rather than complain about it so much, he builds a tower to wait and to watch. He says, all right, I'll wait and watch. I'll trust you. I'll wait and watch. I'll wait expectantly. I'll wait in hope. I'll wait to see the faithfulness of God come. And then God says, ah, write this down. Send it out. It's going to happen. It it won't delay. It's not going to happen right now, but it's a certain, so certain I can say it won't delay. Everything's set in place. It's going to happen. Now, there's two kinds of people. He says in verse 4, there's the puffed up arrogant ones, and there's the ones who live by faith. You get a great sense that Habakkuk is supposed to hear in that, Habakkuk, you now are to live by faith. And that we now are to live, not puffed up and arrogant, but we now are to live by faith as well. Part of the beauty of the scripture for us is that we get to experience relationships with old dead people, alive, but who have died, gone before us, like Habakkuk, who take what we might call inspired journeys. Journeys in that this is their life before God inspired in the sense that that God superintends this life in such a way that writes it down for us, at least a piece of this person's life writes it down for us so we can see how is it that we're to respond, how is it that we're to live in the midst of this kind of situation. And we do live in this kind of situation. We live in the kind of situation where we wonder, God, how long? We wonder, God, How can this be? And he calls us, we realize, to live not by sight, but to live by faith. He says there are those that live arrogant and puffed up lives. He's speaking of the Babylonians, may well be speaking, particularly of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the key Babylonian who would come against them, the king of those Chaldeans. And so, he was indeed a puffed up one. And he goes on in what I read at the end of beginning in verse 5 of these ones who are puffed up, these ones who are arrogant. They don't live by faith in God. They live by trust in themselves, by their own greed as we see. And what God says to Habakkuk is, is, is here's how they live. They will be judged. Beginning in verse 6, we have what uh, Old Testament call, scholars call a taunt song. Um, uh, it's, it's really trash talk is what it, I mean that's the, the we would say today it's a taunt song but usually that doesn't sound very good about to say athletes uh, there's a taunt song going on in the secondary uh, it just wouldn't work but, 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 but this is what's happening and so God is saying what's going to happen eventually to the Babylonians these Chaldeans is all those people they've oppressed are one day going to rise up against them so they too these Babylonians they too will be judged they'll be judged because of their greed their greed has, has led them to take for themselves and to indenture people uh, and to be unjust to go after unjust gain and, 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 and build up their own lives at the expense of others indeed unjustly. They'll be violent because you see greed has to have and if greed can't have on legitimate terms then greed has through injustice. 
And if justice doesn't get all you want, then there's violence. And then finally, he speaks of, of, of seduction and, and, and manipulation, uh, getting neighbors drunk so that you can have your way, if you will, with them. And all of this then has the underlying cause of idolatry. And God points out to Habakkuk how silly that is. Not only how wrong that is, but how silly idolatry is. He says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? And we don't have to shape idols out of, out of wood or out of stone or out of particular materials. We can shape idols in our own minds, things that we look to, things we say that is what should rule us, whether it's money or fame or prestige, whatever that happens to be. And he says, what profit is an idol when you have shaped it when you make your own God for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols he said they don't speak you have to speak for them you have to say what they would want said woe to him who says to a wooden thing awake to a silent stone arise behold it's overlaid with gold and silver there's no breath at all in it but he says here's the difference God is in his holy temple And we are to keep silence before him, meaning that when we see him, we'll just have the breath sucked out of us because of how awesome and great he is. Who can teach him? Who can fashion him? Who can counsel him? He says, ah, we keep silence before him. And so he says to Habakkuk, don't worry, there'll be justice. It will come later. Wait for it. It'll come. I'm just. I'm righteous. But he says, I want you, Habakkuk, to live by faith. Now, this little verse, this little expression, the righteous shall live by faith, is a very famous verse in church history. In fact, so famous, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who passed away a few years ago, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, in a sermon on this passage, entitles it Martin Luther's Text. It was this little expression that the just or the righteous shall live by faith that that really transformed Luther's life and thus brought about this time of reformation. Luther lived, of course, you remember, in a time when the idea that a person receives salvation by grace, the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus alone, uh, was almost forgotten. Uh, there is this sense that in order to be in relationship with God, one had in some sense to do something for it. One had in some sense to pay for your own sins through penance or to help others by paying an indulgence, that is by giving money in some sense to the church or by depending not on the works of Christ and his goodness and righteousness, but by depending on the righteousness and the goodness of some of those who have gone before you who were better than the rest of us, what was called the merits of the saints. And so this idea that a person could be in relationship with God, reconciled to him by way of faith, only faith, and only faith in Jesus was was almost unknown in at least in certain circles. And 
this young man, Martin Luther, was on his way to become a lawyer. He wanted to be a lawyer, and, and he found himself one day, as a, you can see, perhaps somewhat of a superstitious young man. He, 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 was, he was in the midst of a thunderstorm, and he cried out to, to St. Anne, really, and he said, St. Anne, save me, and if you do, I'll become a monk. So he did. He was saved, so he became a monk. Much to his father's dismay, he found his way to a monastery. There, uh, he began his time of study. Uh, he had a great sense of the holiness and the righteousness of God. In fact, when Luther came to say his first Mass, uh, he started out with these words. He says, We offer unto, de- unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And then he would later write, At these words I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeking that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Now that wasn't the sentiments of a neurotic. Those were the sentiments of a man who had a sense of the holiness of God. And he had that very early on, but, but he didn't know what to do with it. He didn't know how to understand it because he, he didn't understand what the scripture would teach about this holy and righteous and gracious God. He, he didn't know that. He was fortunate to have a mentor who mentioned to him some of the great texts of grace. One being, the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. That was in his mind. It was playing over. He began to think of those texts, but they didn't ring true. They didn't bring him to faith immediately. In fact, this sense of the holiness and the righteousness of God plagued him and sent him really in two directions. One is in the direction of working as hard as he could to win the favor of this God, and the second was to despise this God. For instance, he wrote this. He said, I kept the rule of the monastery so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. But then he went on to say, if I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. In fact, as he put it, he said that he hated God. Listen to these words. He says, I was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God. I hated him. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. You see, Luther understood this righteousness of God as the righteousness that God rightly required of those whom he created. That is, he was, is, righteous in himself, God. Thus, to be in relationship with him, we must also be right. See, righteousness simply means right according to some standards. So the righteousness of God means to be right according to the standard of God. 
Righteousness for a businessman would be to maximize profits, profits being the standard. So you must succeed there as a businessman to be righteous in that sense. Righteous as a basketball player would mean to make all your shots. That's the standard. So thus, a righteous basketball player is one who is right according to that standard. A righteous student would be a student who made 100% on all the exams and the papers. That would be the standard. That would be the standard that is set the highest one. Thus, to be perfectly righteous would mean to, to be right according to that standard. To be right according to the standard of God would be to be holy as he is Holy Luther knew that, and he said, that is impossible. How could anyone attain to such a thing? And, and who, what kind of God, would be such that would punish those with hell who couldn't meet that standard? What kind of God is that? That's impossible for us. None of us can make it because the righteousness of God comes with its precepts and its penalties, the precepts being the very commands of God, those things which are righteous and holy and right to do. And if you don't perform them, if you're not obedient to them, then there's the penalty, the righteous and holy penalty that a just God must impose. And so Luther knew that. Luther felt that. And he says, how can, can, it, can it be? But he tried his best. In fact, on one occasion, he was convinced that if he went to Rome on a pilgrimage, he might at least be able, because this is what the Pope had said, he might at least be able to free a relative or two from this purgatory place. And in the Basilica St. John's Lateran, the Pope had said that if you climbed the stairs there, there were It was a set of stairs, four sections, but a set of stairs that had come from Jerusalem, it was said, to Rome. And on the inner stairs, there was two sections outside, two sections inside. On the two inner stairs were stains said to be stains caused by the dripping of the blood of Christ. And those stains that were covered with pieces of glass so that they could still be seen And it was said by the Pope that if you climbed those stairs on your knees and kissed the stains of Jesus, saying the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, and you made it to the top, that then a relative, a friend, someone appointed, would be sprung from purgatory. So Luther went to do that. But yet so discouraged was he when he got to the top as he thought it through with this expression, the righteous shall live by faith in his mind, that it said that he got to the top and remarked, would it be true, that is, have I just wasted my time? In fact, later his son, Paul Luther, writes this of his father. He said, as he repeated his prayers on the Lateran staircase, The word of the prophet Habakkuk came to mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased all his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. Luther himself would write this. Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. But when by the Spirit of God I understood these words, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Now the reason 
that that expression was such a blessing to Martin Luther is because those words are true. They're the very words of God. In fact, as the New Testament writers, Paul and the author of Hebrews, pick up this whole idea of what it means to be in relationship with God, this is a key expression for them. For instance, in Romans in chapter 1, we read this, verse 16. Paul writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he picks up this this expression out of Habakkuk, knowing that that was Habakkuk's need, that was Habakkuk's trouble. If you're going to really live, then you must live by faith, not by sight. And this faith must be faith in God. And so now Paul takes that and he says, this is true, it's a a truth, all the way from the old to the new. And now as we understand it in, in the gospel, we need to realize that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now what Luther didn't get is the next expression. In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith. It can be translated either way, which simply means it begins with faith, ends with faith. It's faith all the way through. The good news of the gospel is that it reveals the righteousness of God not only as God's righteous precepts that must be obeyed and God's righteous penalty if not obeyed, but it reveals that this it reveals this righteousness of God on the basis of faith. That is, trusting in another. That is, that there is one who has come. This is the gospel message. This is what the gospel reveals about the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals about the righteousness of God is that there's someone who's come and who's done all of that. And by faith in him. That righteousness is imputed, appropriated, credited, given, counted to the one who has faith. And when Luther saw that, he said, oh, the righteousness of God is a glorious thing. Because the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And the gospel is good news. And the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus. And he's my redeemer. He's my savior. And that's it. So in Romans in chapter 3, the apostle puts it like this, verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God, this expression that once almost killed Martin Luther and would be a great burden to anybody who didn't understand it by way of the gospel, because of all you understood of the righteousness of God is his precepts and penalty, and that's it and you believe that, you would be as plagued and as destroyed in life as Luther was and just as condemned in death as he knew he would be, if that's all you knew. But there's more to it. There's the gospel. And in the rites he so so Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's a gift to all who believe in Jesus. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, 
declared to be righteous. That's what that word justified means. It means a declaration has been declared that you are now right with God. For there is no distinction for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Meaning, Jesus lived righteously for us. All the precepts he obeyed. Every time you and I sin, we recognize that Jesus has obeyed his righteousness cover our unrighteousness. And we realize this too, that not only did he obey all the righteous precepts of God's righteousness, but he took the penalty of our sin. Thus, it is by faith we receive the righteousness of God. So when the prophet, when the apostle says that the righteous shall live by faith, that righteousness is a righteousness that's a gift that's given to us, all who believe. It's received. And that faith isn't a work that we do, it's something that we do, and God said, okay, you had enough faith, therefore now I'm going to give you righteousness. No, it's not that at all, because faith is the opposite of working for anything. Faith is saying, I can't trust me. Faith, as our friend Jerry Bridges puts it, is a renunciation first. It's a renunciation of who we are. And it's a receiving of all that God has for us by his grace. The righteous one isn't the perfect one. The righteous one is the one who trusts in the perfect one. The righteous one isn't the sinless one. The righteous one in this context is the one who trusts in the sinless one. That's why it's such good news. That's why it's gospel. It's horrible news. The righteousness of God for sinners. Apart from Christ, all it does is put us under a burden we can't meet, condemns us for all eternity. Lucifer said, ah, oh, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now that's good news. Now, he goes on, Paul does, in the book of Galatians to speak of this expression as well in Galatians in chapter 3. And basically what he's going to say is that it's always been like this. This isn't anything new. This isn't just a New Testament thing. It does come from Habakkuk, but it goes all the way back to Abraham. Uh, In Galatians in chapter 3, in verse 7, the apostle writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, declare righteous, the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Our father Abraham, the scripture says in Genesis chapter 15, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And thus everyone who believes as Abraham believed are part of the family of Abraham. This family of by faith. That's how it comes. I see that the problem in these Galatian churches is that they wanted to go back to the old covenant even now that the new covenant had come. And in going back to the old covenant, they were adding things. They said, no, if you want to, to be in relationship with God, you have to be circumcised. You have to do this and this and this, all of the old covenant law ceremonies. And, and Paul said, no, 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 no. It isn't faith in Jesus plus everything else or anything else. It's simply by faith in him, trust in no one, nothing other than him. In fact, all those old covenant things pointed to him. So don't go back. There's no need to trust in him and in him alone. The author of Hebrews is talking to a group of people who are struggling in their perseverance. They'd begun well as the people in Galatia. They'd begun well. But now there's this sense that the trouble is coming to them. And now they may fall away. And so you remember a few years ago when we spent a few years in Hebrews. That we realized the danger this church was in. At least so it seemed. And in Hebrews in chapter 10. The author of Hebrews is speaking to them. And he's telling them don't shrink back but continue on in the faith. And he wants to encourage them. And so he encourages them by something that's contemporary to them, something that's taking place. So in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32, we read this. He says, but recall the former days. This is in the beginning of their coming to faith. But recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So he's saying, remember, right after you came to faith, things seemed to go south for you. There are great struggles, great persecution. Um, Some of you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, which is sort of a nice way of saying you were ridiculed and thrown in prison and beaten, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Sometimes it was your friends and you were guilty by association. Verse 34. If you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He said, ah, remember how you lived by faith. Not by sight, but by faith. By sight, things were going downhill. By sight, things were very difficult. By sight, you were being persecuted and suffering. But you knew something else by faith. You knew something was true, just as true as what you were seeing, truer than what you were seeing, more certain that it would come than what you were seeing would even continue. And so he says, you knew that, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for, and then he goes to Habakkuk. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament way of saying, but if he's puffed up, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But then he goes on to say, but we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the author of Hebrews is saying, now remember, you began in faith. Now you're to live by that very same faith. It isn't you come into this by faith and then you're on your own. It isn't that you come into this thing by faith and then you have to work really hard to maintain it. It's that, no, 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 your whole life is characterized by believing Christ. So now trust in him. He gives examples and he he says with this definition in 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is, we live by faith, not by sight. You have a certainty that the things you hope for, the things which you do not see, will come to pass. And the reason you're so certain of them is because God has made these promises and you're trusting in him. How do you know you're forgiven? Who said so? You're trusting that what Jesus said he did on the cross, he did on the cross. You're trusting because he's trustworthy, because he's God in the flesh. How do you know there's glory to come? You haven't seen it, but you're trusting this one Jesus who said there's glory to come. How do you know that he will help you and strengthen you and cause his image to be conformed in you, his character in you. How do you know? Because he said so. And you're trusting in him, the very one who is the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the very one who is God in the flesh, the very one who has given himself for you. You're trusting in him. That's how you know. You're assured of those things. You hope for those things. Those things are as certain as this pulpit is here. Those things are that certain. Because he said so and has convinced us of that by his word and spirit. And we get examples of those who heard that word from Abel and and Enoch and Noah. Strangest man in the world, I suppose. Building a boat in those days. Big, big one. And yet he trusted in the very word that he knew had come from God. And Abraham, God said, leave this place of comfort, this place of family, this place of home, and go to a new place. And he went. He says, you're old, your wife is old, but you're going to have a child. Trusted in this one who could call things into being which were not. Oh, it said... The author of Hebrews, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus made it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city where to live by Faith, trusting Jesus' righteousness and his alone. What's it do for us? Very quickly, these things. Number one, it causes us, I think, to be humble. This is not anything that we've 
derive for ourselves. We've abandoned trust in ourselves and anyone else. We've abandoned trust in ourselves to trust in him. And in abandoning trust in ourselves, we say we're untrustworthy. We cannot, we cannot be righteous before God. We understand who God is as Luther knew him to be as the righteous and holy God. And we realize that we cannot look upon him in our own sin. We need someone in whom to go. We need someone to carry us there. We need a mediator between us and him. And that is Jesus Christ. So we trust in him. It humbles us. There can be no puffed upness in us. No arrogance in us. It gives us a great sense of assurance because it isn't in us, it's in him. And as he lives, as he is trustworthy, then we're assured in all of that. It gives us a sense to persevere because there is a better country. There is something that is good as we watch and wait with great hopefulness. And there is this. There's a deep and abiding sense of gratitude. We speak often in our country about Thanksgiving and we should be thankful ones as Americans. We have been blessed in numerous ways that, are, that just blow the historic charts. But as we've always said, thankfulness is not a comparison between what we have and what we want. As Americans, we're doing pretty well there. We're thankful upon that measure. But it isn't that that really causes the deepest and most abiding sense of gratefulness. We're not thankful as we compare what we have, even with what we need. And as Americans, we, we certainly are well above the charts on that one. But still, that isn't the measure. The true measure of abiding gratefulness is a comparison between what we have and what we deserve to have. And when we come to that one, we realize as believers in Christ, we must be infinitely and eternally grateful. Because as Luther knew what he deserved because of the righteousness of God, but then realized what he got because of the righteousness of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, How can we ever be ungrateful? That word transformed this prophet Habakkuk. He would wait and watch and see. And in the very end of his prophetic journey, verse 16 of chapter 3, He writes, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. (laughs) As he anticipates what's going to come. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So he says, I know it's going to happen to us by their hand, but I also know it's going to happen to them. But then verse 17 Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, 
is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And then the last instruction concerning this whole prophetic word to the choir master. He says, now let's sing that. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us in these days when in fact there may be no figs on the vine in the days to come. Life may be different than we have known it to be as we face these months of economic uncertainty. For others, life may not be as it has been because of the loss of those they love. For others, they may be facing hard, hard decisions in relationships, difficult times with parents, difficult times with children. Father, we don't know these days that are next upon us. Thus we pray that you would grant us great faith. We would trust in this one who has shown himself to be trustworthy, this Jesus who has come, and this one who has come and loved and lived and died. All for us, that we might be reconciled, Father, unto you. I pray we trust. Give us faith. Not in what we see, but what we know to be true. Not in what we hear from talk of each other, but what we hear from you. And we would trust you. Father, for those who are facing this deep difficulty, I pray for the whites, God. And you would be with them in these days, and little Caden, God, to, um, you would love him well care for his body and soul. Father, for uh, Rebecca, uh, Gary and Kathy Rockman's granddaughter, Father, that you would be with her in these days as she seeks treatment for this Lyme disease that's been so devastating on her. Uh, For Dean Barnum's daughter and a brain tumor, we pray. We pray for the Thomases, for Fred and his family, his dad most especially as he is suffering. We thank you for what you've done in little Holly Unruh's life. We pray that you would continue to bless and heal there. Father, we pray for our work with Family Promise Network, and I pray that continues to be a blessing in this community, most especially to those most in need. For those that minister out of here, for all of us in a sense, but most especially for Mark McElmurray as he continues in seminary. Bless him, God, with vision and plan for the future. For Denny Chadwick, God, as he ministers with uh, varsity to uh, students and fac- graduate students and faculty at the university. Father, be with him. May his faith be strong. For Dan and Sarah Pudcamp in Costa Rica, may they trust you. God, may that be true for all of us. May it spring in humility and in worship and in desire to follow after you in confidence, assurance, and most especially in gratefulness. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. To do, take notice in the bulletin before we receive the benediction and sing, there is...
our affirmation of faith. We thought it would be wisest and most helpful to do this at the end of our worship today, this affirmation of faith, to say together this creed of the church that's been with us for centuries that believers have been saying because it so echoes that which is true, that which we trust, even God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let us together affirm our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, together let us sing. Dismissed.